Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pietro Bordelato, Media Editor for Fertility and Sterility Reports, and I'd like to welcome you all to our newest podcast, Fertility and Sterility Unplugged. Most of you are hopefully already familiar with Fertility and Sterility's main podcast, FNS On Air, which you probably download monthly, where we run through the whole edition of the upcoming Fertility and Sterility issue. FNS Unplugged, our new podcast, is a slightly different podcast where we focus on the FNS sister journals, FNS reports, science, and reviews. And our goal is each to take one article from our upcoming edition and discuss it with you, our listener. Instead of really reviewing all of the articles that are published in the sister journals, we're going to pick the ones that we think are most interesting and the ones where we think that there's some nuance, some clinical implication, and some things that are worth diving a little bit deeper in. Periodically, we'll have special guests, authors, experts in the field to help us discuss the science, but mostly you'll hear from myself and my two co-hosts. My first co-host is Dr. Blake Evans. Blake is an assistant professor in the Department of REI at the University of Oklahoma and serves as the media editor for FNS Reviews. I'm also joined by Dr. Dalon James. Dalon is an assistant professor of reproductive medicine at Weill Cornell and media editor for FNS Science. It's really great to have both of you on here with us. Excited to do this, guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it and happy to be here. Let's jump right into it since this is the first time we're all getting together to discuss an article. Dalon, why don't we start with your article? And boy, let me tell you, Blake and I are really happy that it's you presenting it because it is basic science heavy. <laughs> well, uh, I'm very happy to present this too because it is, I would say in some some sense, the culmination of decades of effort. The title here is, Blastocyst development after fertilization with in vitro spermatids derived from non-human primate embryonic stem cells. Yes, it's a mouthful. Uh, the bottom line here is making gametes from an indefinitely renewable source. In this case, potentially patient-specific. Uh, it began really, as long as we've been talking about making any kind of tissue from embryonic stem cells, we've thought about making gametes. I think the early efforts really at the turn of the millennium were very basic, uh, didn't get very far, but within a decade, really revolutionary work uh, had been done to show that you can in fact generate primordial germ cells and subsequently sperm and oocytes from pluripotent stem cells and generate uh, live born pups. This is in mice, of course, that are fertile and by all signs seem normal. So as soon as you know that came off the pipe, I'm sure you guys got an earful from all your patients that were struggling with infertility whether or not they could have their own child or a child of their own genetic background using their skin cells. You know, this probably really took off once the whole idea of induced pluripotent stem cells took root around 2006. And since then, there've been a lot of studies showing that you can, in fact, many by Mitenuro Saitu and Katsuhiko uh, Hayashi, who uh, pioneered the work and have shown, Hayashi in particular has shown also in human pluripotent stem cells that you can generate oocytes that then undergo fertilization and development. So like, it seems like we're really on the cusp of being able to generate gametes 
from this renewable source from patients. Um, although uh, we should probably discuss that because I would argue there's a lot of unknown unknowns that make it maybe not viable ever. Anyway, uh, when you talk about sperm uh, and spermatids, about a decade ago, uh, Charles Easley, who was working uh, with uh, Gerald Shatton at that point, they first were able to generate human sperm-like or spermatids, spermatocyte-like cells from human pluripotent stem cells. Uh, and then, of course, the race was on to see whether or not this could be translated into actual functional gametes to make babies, right? But there's many obstacles, ethical, practical to that. And um, it's been a decade, right? So there have been many strides made, but the idea of actually doing this with human cells uh, much less making a baby, you know, making gametes and, and embryos, much less a baby. Uh, there's a lot that needs to be done in advance of that. So that leads us to this story. The three lead authors here are Sujitra Kamp uh, Kampang, sorry if I mispronounce, Inki Cho, Kanchana Punawai. Uh, and the lead author is Charles Easley, again, his group at the Primate Research Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And the bottom line here is they're trying to see if they could use primate embryonic stem cells to generate functional spermatids. And the way they did this is using these well-established differentiation cocktails to generate these spermatogenic lineages, and then did a lot of, you know, I guess you would call it quality control or assay to show that they were indeed generating these sperm-like cells using RNA sequencing and other types of analyses. And then ultimately went on to fertilize oocytes. And this was the real test. Could these gametes be functional? They uh, used ICSI to inject them into oocytes they got from hyperstimulated female rhesus macaque and um, showed that they got fertilization and development up to blastocyst stage. And that's where the studies were ceased, uh, I think, to be conservative. Uh, I agree with that choice. But, you know, Bottom line here is this is, I think, uh, another major step forward in the effort to generate gametes from pluripotent stem cells. Although I will say that the major caveat here that I would have with this study is that it wasn't easy. I mean, these oocytes had to be artificially activated by a sperm extract in order for them to be competent for fertilization. And the generation of a blastocyst, I can understand why you wouldn't move forward with implantation, but I think that due diligence, they may, they could have perhaps generated embryonic stem cell lines from these blastocysts. Uh, they're, you know, pretty good at doing that there. And that would have provided a resource where they could really, in a renewable way, show whether those, uh, that cell line was defined by the constituent parts, the oocyte and that donor cell line that was used to generate the haploid spermatid. So I think there's a little bit ways to go in terms of, of really proving that you can generate uh, these functional spermatids from primate pluripotent stem cells, but definitely a, a big step forward. And I hope your patients don't get a hold of this paper, guys, because they're going to be asking you tomorrow if they can make their skin into sperm or eggs and, and you're going to have to have an answer for them. So have a look at this paper. I plan on sending them to you and you'll have the opportunity to talk to your first patient. Um, I heard earlier in the podcast that you were, you hadn't had that opportunity yet. So be on the lookout for that. This um, podcast is bringing you opportunities. A lot of I, opportunities, but let me ask you guys seriously, do you think that this is, I don't know about ready for prime time, but what's your take on, the science here, the practicality, the, the ethics, the potential is. 
I worry about how we make the leap to showing that it works all the way in humans. And I use the CRISPR example a lot, but the leap to show that CRISPR can result in children that may or may not have the corrected gene, that was kind of a, someone did that in the thick of night without scientific consensus or the community really saying, we are now ready to do this. The, the level of data that we have for both safety and efficacy is there. And I wonder how far we are from having that in this scenario where we're using stem cell derived gametes, both either oocytes or, or spermatids. Dale, are, are you thinking this is a, a 5, 10, 15, 20 year project? Or you think this is something that within the next couple of years, someone may do it in the thick of night and boom, we may be there and it's been done. Well, I would invite Blake's opinion first, and then I'll weigh in on that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's uh, a lot of things to consider with regard to this topic. Um, but, you know, conceptually, it potentially could be a great treatment. Uh, you know, you, you aside from all of the other ethics and dilemmas and hurdles that you have to get over, you think of all of our patients who've had a vasectomy and then a vas reversal and they're thinking about going in for a testicular sperm extraction and seems quite appealing to just use a skin biopsy <laughs> in that regard. But I mean, that's just one example, but um, you know, they, the authors also discuss this in their introduction as well. Patients who have had chemo, um, patients who've had in the military and have damage, you know, there's, you can name a million different kinds of things, but um, conceptually, I think it's extremely interesting. I, I thought it was an interesting paper, but I, I don't know. It, it seems like we're so far from even implementing this clinically. Yeah, I would agree with that. And conceptually, yes, there's so many sympathetic cases here. But I, I mean, I would go farther five, 10 years. I would say never, Pietro. I don't think it's ever going to be safe. I don't think we're ever going to know that we know. And I think your example of the you know genetically engineered babies in, in China is a great example of the, the hubris of scientists and our, our failure to recognize that you really cannot F with the germline. I mean, this is forever. So I think because it's forever, the, the, the therapy itself will, will never be practical, at least knowing what, what, what we know now. And this is how I know that I'm an old man because I'm the conservative guy saying, they're never gonna do that. But I really believe it in this case, just because it's the germline guys, you know how precious that is. You know, people used to have these arguments about IVF, and then they had these arguments about ICSI, and then they had these arguments about PGT. And it, it seems like eventually we as a society get there, the science gets us there, patient demand gets us there. I'm not a never person, but I don't think it's going to be in the near future. And I'll leave it at that because I don't want to have this on record and then I'd be proven wrong like Dalon may or may not be. Well, I'll tell you this, you can't ever be proven wrong with someday. You can be proven wrong with, with never. So I'm, I'm the one on the hook, Pietro, you're safe. <laughs> We're gonna transition now to an article from my journal, FNS Reports. The article I'm gonna be discussing is entitled SARS-CoV-2 Spike Protein Seropositivity from Vaccination or Infection Does Not Cause Sterility. This article is by um, Dr. Randy Morris out of Naperville, Illinois. This was a great article. This was just really timely when it came out. Um, but basically what Dr. Morris attempted to do is to speak to the point that a lot of patients have brought to him is, if I get vaccinated, am I gonna be able to have a baby? I'm already infertile, is this gonna make things worse? 
So what he did was he took his a cohort of patients um, who are about to start a frozen embryo transfer cycle, about 143 of them to be exact, and drew their blood and tried to quantitatively determine the levels of anti-SARS-CoV-2 spike antibodies, specifically IgG. And once he had those results, he was able to determine whether or not these patients were reactive or unreactive. If reactive, he followed up with questions about whether or not they've been exposed to vaccines or if they had a history of COVID infection. And at that time, there were three vaccines available in his region, the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, both mRNA-based vaccines, as well as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So once they had these 143 patients and had their blood, they found that about a third of patients demonstrated reactive IgG antibody levels. And of those that were reactive, two thirds were reactive from vaccination and a third were reactive from a prior infection. For the patients who had a prior infection, these were invariably mild or largely asymptomatic infections. These were not patients who were critically ill, hospitalized, intubated. These were young, healthy women who had a COVID infection and recovered. Now, all of these patients underwent a programmed frozen embryo transfer cycle with some variation of intramuscular vaginal progesterone and underwent single embryo transfers performed under ultrasound guidance. They then analyzed the reproductive outcomes of these patients based on three separate groups, whether or not they were reactive from an antibody perspective from vaccine, reactive from infection, or non-reactive, meaning they did not detect any IgG antibodies in their serum ahead of their FET cycle. And what they found was that implantation rate was the same. There was no statistical difference in implantation rate for these women, regardless of reactivity from vaccine or infection, or without ever having antibodies detected in your serum. They also found that once they followed these women for a couple more weeks and were able to perform an ultrasound, there was no difference in their clinical intrauterine pregnancy rate across the same three groups. This study, in as simple as it is, was the first to look at vaccination for SARS-CoV-2 in an ART population, and I think really nicely showed us that, no, being vaccinated or even having a COVID infection Neither of those will cause sterility, and the ART outcomes are just as good as someone who never was exposed to vaccine or never was exposed to a COVID infection. I love this paper. I loved it when it came out. I still love it now, and it's been kind of made its way through the media. I know, Blake, you've published a bit um, on Fertility and Sterility's website, FNS Dialogue, and, um, a couple of months ago, an article talking about vaccine hesitancy and combating misinformation. Out in practice, what are you seeing in Oklahoma and, and how are you com combating vaccine misinformation with, with data? Yeah, good question. And it all started, you know, around in December, whenever that baseless claim came out that the vaccine would in fact lead to sterility. And it, it just really sparked a, a huge amount of concern in all of our patients. And, and right away, we just a lot of the uh, colleagues and I, you included, started talking about, we really need to get some information out there. These are completely baseless claims. There's just no evidence of this whatsoever. And so fortunately, we were able to get that published really quickly um, on the FNS Dialogue website, and it's gained a tremendous amount of traction. And I know multiple authors that are all REI physicians on there have had different interviews with the news, with uh, different social media outlets as well. So just really combating 
this hesitancy and this misinformation parade with uh, with you know with these facts and with a biologic plausibility that this just is not is just not happening. We're not seeing this in the data. And so by getting for one, getting that paper out, I think was a huge help um, in combating misinformation. There still was a lot. There still is a whole lot of misinformation. But as you said, once this paper came out by Morris et al. It was just such a huge sigh of relief because for months we were saying, you know, with with our paper included, biologic plausibility-wise, this is just not something to be concerned about. All the Women's Health Society started releasing their statements and then saying how it's safe, it's recommended, but this was the first really concrete study to show us that there is in fact no concern for uh, increase in infertility. And so, now we are having more and more studies that are starting to mount and showing that it is in fact really safe. And you know that huge New England Journal of Medicine study in April showed there's no increased risk of miscarriage. And there's even another study that was presented at ASRM from the, um, it was the RMA group in New York. And it's kind of similar to this study, except they didn't have a third arm of those who were not, uh, or previously infected with COVID. So I, I think it's really great that we're starting to have all this data mount. And so we can continue to reinforce our patient population that this is in fact safe, it is recommended and can help combat this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, for me, if I were talking to a patient, which I've never done, I would say, you know, let's just do a thought experiment here. If you take the vaccine and you're sterile, then if you get COVID, you're going to be sterile too, right? And the, and the authors mentioned that. So for me, it seems pretty transparent. But then again, as you alluded to, when that announcement was made, and to be clear, that was made by the ex-head of respiratory research at Pfizer. So when right. this guy is coming with this theory, when he posits this theory and calls for an immediate halt, I think a lot of people are going to take it seriously. So yeah, it's easy to talk about, hey, just think about it. But at the end of the day, you need the data. And, and that's what they did really well here. I admired the rigor showing that, uh, you know, quantitatively showing that that there were, they were reactive with the spike IgG. And also, the fact that they really focused on maybe it was accidental because of availability, but the fact that they focused on just the Pfizer and Moderna, I think that made it cleaner to have two, you know, modus uh, that are effectively uh, equivalent. Although the one thing I just put this out there to you guys, is this what you always see? It was, I was kind of shocked, not shocked, but a little bit kind of curious about this p-value between of the BMI. The BMI transfer, the, the people who had been infected, who were reactive to infection, not the ones who were reactive to vaccine versus the naive, they had like uh, a significantly higher BMI. I know that means nothing really, but it, I mean, it's kind of something to think about. I mean, I think that speaks to the nature of the disease. We know that the risk factor for COVID-19 infection are pre-existing conditions and obesity is one of them. So I'm not surprised that we saw slightly higher BMI in the group that was reactive from infection and lower in the non-reactive or the reactive from vaccine group. To me, that makes perfect sense. I'll, I'll also add that we started with really high level implantation and clinically intrauterine pregnancy data here, but we've since really had a lot of nice human data that has showed that in women who are acutely infected with SARS-CoV-2, we're not detecting virus in their follicular fluid. We're not detecting it in semen of acutely sick men. There, there's a mounting level, mounting amount of data to suggest that infection should be avoided and the best way to avoid it is through vaccination. But even if you are infected or are vaccinated, it will in no way impact your long-term reproductive potential. 
There may be transient changes in semen parameters. And I think that's been shown in several studies now, but the kind of thing that recovers and something that's not too far off of what's happening with an influenza or other viral-like illness. These are the things that are, that are transient. So I love this paper. If you want to read the full paper, it's on FNS reports online. All right, that's enough of my article. Blake, let's finish off the podcast with a discussion about your article that comes to us from FNS Reviews. All right, thanks, Pietro. So this this article I'm going to go over is entitled Gonadotropin Releasing Hormone Agonist Alone or Combined with Human Chorionic Gonadotropin versus Human Chorionic Gonadotropin Alone for Ovulation Triggering During Controlled Ovarian Stimulation for In Vitro Fertilization slash Intracytoplasmic Sperm Injection, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by first author Mathilde Bourdon and senior author Pietro Santulli of Paris, France. So a little bit of background as to the motive for this study. For several years, HCG has been utilized to trigger ovulation because of its high degree of homology with LH, or luteinizing hormone. However, due to its longer half-life to that of LH, it has adverse implications such as risk of ovarian hyperstimulation, or OHSS. Although GnRH agonists utilize an endogenous release of gonadotropins, the authors point out that the data is mixed regarding whether it has differing IVF outcomes compared to HCG. So the most recent meta-analysis prior to this study by Yusuf et al. from the Cochrane database in 2014 concludes that GnRH agonist triggers do decrease OHSS risk, but to the detriment of live birth rate at fresh transfers. However, there are other studies that point out that with high dose of estrogen and progesterone for luteal support that we commonly use today, the outcomes are comparable. And so given this controversial data, the authors sought to evaluate whether gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist triggering improves oocyte maturation, pregnancy outcomes, and safety compared with HCG. So the primary outcomes of the study were the total number of retrieved oocytes, the number of mature oocytes. Secondary outcomes were number of embryos obtained, clinical pregnancy rate, pregnancy loss rate, live birth rate, and incidence of OHSS. This was, again, a systematic review of about 1,400 studies, but ultimately the study included 29 randomized controlled trials. The authors had concluded that with the GnRH agonist trigger, both alone and with a dual trigger with HCG, when compared to HCG alone, it was found to have a higher number of retrieved oocytes and mature oocytes and no decreased risk of OHSS. But I will point out this was with a mean difference of approximately one additional oocyte or embryo. They also found that there was no difference in terms of clinical pregnancy rate, live birth rate, pregnancy loss rate as well when using GnRH agonists alone. However, it was found that a dual trigger was associated with a 22% increase in clinical pregnancy rate compared to HCG alone. So the authors point out that these findings uh, could possibly make sense because there's an increased physiologic release of additional endogenous FSH and LH using a GnRH agonist trigger. And this could possibly benefit LH receptor formation, cumulus expansion, and effects of downstream signaling cascades. And so therefore, a higher number of mature oocytes. So additionally, the quality of mature oocytes increases and therefore because of that, an increased number of embryos, possibly at the level of growth factors within the follicular fluid. So a couple of comments I had about this study, the results show that there was no difference in OHSS incidence with dual trigger versus HCG alone. 
But in someone who is at risk for OHSS, Pietro, wouldn't you agree that most practices will be using an HCG dose that's much higher than what is used in this study? They use 5,000 to 6.5 thousand. And I feel like in a dual trigger, most people are going to use a much lower dose of that. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that was that also struck me a little bit about this article. It's really hard to tell what individual clinics are doing, and you lose some of that in when you get to the meta-analysis stage. I know that in freeze-all cycles, people are willing to tolerate slightly higher doses of HCG, but like we do at Cornell, where we still really believe in the fresh transfer, for particularly for patients with diminished reserve, we are very attuned to lowering that HCG dose as low as possible to risk-reduce OHSS, capture some of that physiologic benefit of adding a GnRH agonist to the trigger, but then also, I think, hopefully getting a little bit bigger bang for our buck in terms of oocyte quality and eventual embryo quality from it. So I agree with you. I think most people are really dropping their HCG dose for a dual trigger. Yeah, my takeaway here, this is a non-clinical perspective, more from the scientific standpoint, is, uh, wow, I mean, this uh, meta-analyses are a lot of hard work. And I was struck by the numbers, you know, thousands of studies that the candidate boiled down to 29. And even amongst those 29, you have really different doses, methods of selection, inclusion. So it's tough, I think, to flatten all those to get uh, to glean some insight out of here. Uh, but for me, what I what I drew from, I think you guys made it pretty clear is that we, we've gotten uh, better at triggering and, and these meta-analyses are coming about out every five years or so, I think are progressively showing that there is less of a detriment and that what we've learned over the course of many cycles has benefited the patients. My only comment there is I look forward to day in the future where these data can be corralled on a shorter time scale contemporaneously so that we can glean these insights closer to real time and, and deliver them to our patients rather than having to wait every five years for another meta-analysis. Another point about, I think, what's lost with these meta-analyses is that looking just at trigger doesn't tell the whole story. I think you really need to know how the stimulation went leading up to the trigger. There's certainly practices in the North America that stimulate very differently than practices in Europe, using much higher gonadotropin doses and tolerating much higher estradiol levels. So I think that's the, the missing picture here for me. I know how we practice at our center and how I would practice and what trigger dosings I use in that setting, but understanding how different centers stimulate, I think it's important for just context. Yeah, agreed. And, and you know, with these meta-analyses, uh, you know, the study is only as good as the studies that you're putting into it, you know, so there was some admittedly high heterogeneity in this study, but we're still seeing increased pregnancy rates, number of oocytes, number of embryos. So is there any harm in routinely offering this? It's a pretty low-cost intervention, uh, two shots. You know, I don't think anyone's going to really shriek at that thought and say, no way, I'm not doing two injections, that's a, that's going to be a game changer for me, but is there any harm in just routinely offering this as a trigger? I think it's cost. I think none of these medications are free, unfortunately, and you do introduce the extra cost for patients who may sometimes not need it, but I think you can't discount human error. We have seen at our center, no shortage of patients who sometimes mess up one out of the two injections and having that other injection as a backup really saves the whole cycle, allows you to continue with the planned retrieval without having to re-trigger patients or even cancel cycle for an underwhelming trigger. So I like it for many reasons in addition to just, it's a nice insurance policy at the end of a really expensive stimulation. I envision a world in which centers that still do fresh transfers are increasingly moving towards the dual trigger. 
And certainly for centers that are all freeze-all centers, there's really no reason not to consider it or just purely do a loop-run trigger alone. Very good point. Well, I think this was a clinically relevant study, larger in size than the prior meta-analyses, as I mentioned, and so I applaud the authors for a well-done and useful study. Thanks, Blake. That was an excellent review of your article in FNS Reviews. Well, I wanted to thank all of you, our listeners, for listening today. I also wanted to thank my co-host, Blake and Dalon, for joining us on what is our first of many um, FNS Unplug episodes. As you all know, the conversation continues beyond these podcasts. You can find us on Fertility and Sterility's social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And since we are recording this podcast ahead of time in the month of December, we hope everyone had a happy holiday and a great start to their new year. And we look forward to seeing all of you, our listeners, on our monthly recurring FNS Unplugged podcast. Thanks so much for joining. And until next time. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the Fertility and Sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. 